the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Sure, there are many contractors who promise quality construction, but few with 45 years of experience that you can trust. Good news, there's Honkoop Gravel. They have professionals with experience in site prep, drainage systems, house foundations, and custom projects all under one roof. And with 45 years of service experience, they do it right the first time. Honkoop Gravel, the full-service civil contractors you can trust. Honkoop Gravel in Linden, or visit honkoop.com for information. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Neater House of Luxury in Bellingham. Dedicated to service acknowledges the Whatcom Literacy Council staff, volunteers, and the many community contributors who helped make this year's literacy breakfast a huge success. More than $30,000 was raised to help fund free adult literacy programs in Whatcom County. Improved literacy is a key component to help people become more empowered, employable, and better able to care for themselves and their families. And this money will help provide free tutoring and small group classes for hundreds of local adults motivated to learn. Dedicated to service. Brought to you by Neater House of Luxury. Voted best jewelry store in the Northwest. This holiday, start with Neater House of Luxury for their beautiful selection of jewelry with unique and custom designs perfect for the one you love for Christmas and the New Year. Find them at 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107 next to Lombardi's back patio. Neater House of Luxury. The mysterious, the obscure, the strange. In some cases, it is the animal reactions that led to the sighting. Coast to coast. In France, Marius de Wilde said that his barking dog caused him to go outside to see what had startled him. He saw something on the nearby railroad tracks and then two small creatures. A beam of light shot out from that object momentarily paralyzing him. Every night at 10 p.m. and beyond on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The future of farmland here in northwest Washington, some of the most fertile farmland in the world is in Whatcom and in Skagit counties. And and a question remains about protecting that farmland, yes, from development, but also another threat. And it's something that we've talked about before here on the program and something that uh, leaders in Skagit County have been working on, protecting farmland from and farming really ultimately as a whole without farmland you can't farm practically and and you drop below a certain threshold of the ability to farm and you know a farming economy a farming community in a given area uh, begins to collapse and of course that's that's the fear but one of the things that could hasten that is um actually environmental um you know fish habitat projects do farmers not want to help fish? No, that's not the story at all. But we've talked about this before. What's happened in Skagit with Seattle City Light? That uh, Seattle City Light, uh, the big, big uh, organization, of course, uh, has an outsized impact in Skagit County. Why Skagit County and Seattle City Light? Because Seattle, uh, the city of Seattle, gets a lot of its power from its hydroelectric dams in Skagit County on the Skagit River. And uh, back with us uh, for an update on this issue 
is Will Honey, a senior deputy prosecutor with the Skagit County Prosecutor's Office. Welcome to the program this morning, Will. One of the, the sticking points, and I understand there have been some improvements. I, I know this has been in the news. Uh, King 5 has covered this issue. What's going on with, with this? I mean, it involves dams and fish passage and farmland and mitigation and a lot of this heady stuff. But one of the more immediate impacts right now is there is drainage uh, infrastructure, um, drain, you know, ditches and dikes and, and so forth, as well as in Skagit County, tide gates that protect farmland um, that need to be maintained. And they can't be right now as part of this larger brouhaha. Give us the update. What's, what's happening with that, Will? Uh, yeah, thanks, Stone. Good morning. Yeah, um, so uh, you're right. This is a very complicated, long-running set of issues, and they are all—they're all connected, and a river runs through it. So it's um, you know water rights, tide gates, fish passage, flood control, everything going on here is 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 very much connected. But um, you know, in this Seattle City Light relicensing, things you know things seem to be going in a pretty good direction. We've made some real progress on flood control, and we're we're happy uh, that Seattle City Lights come around and is working with us on that, as well as other stakeholders. Obviously, you know, flood storage at the Ross Reservoir is uh, it's the single most important and single most uh, cost-effective flood control mitigation measure mm-hmm. in the valley. So we're very concerned about this. Yep. Uh, uh, and then uh, you know, fish passage um is uh you know not squarely in our wheelhouse that's uh, more something the discussions going on between seattle city light agencies and tribes um but you know i think the way to think about it is fish passage is something that's really demonstrably effective at, at putting fish in the river and the treaty obligation is about a har- it's about actual salmon to harvest sustain uh you know it's not just commercial activity it's to sustain a culture and uh, but at the same time, there's Endangered Species Act obligations uh, with respect to listed species in, 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 in principally in the Skagit. That's Chinook. Right. And so, um, you know, what, what we've tried to do in all of this is to ensure we get our good, good flood control that's you know reasonable. Um, everybody's needs need to be balanced. And we think we're pretty close on that. Um, we also want to you know, we came into this wanting to see. Uh, not just a focus on the Skagit Delta and farmland, but fish passage, as well as really targeted recovery actions that are um, careful, organized, rational, prioritized, and are multi-benefit because, you know, we need to be looking at infrastructure in addition to uh, creating good habitat. And so, um, you know, that's uh, that's that's been a real focus. And part of the problem in all of this is that, uh, you know, and this definitely had some connection with the city light relicensing in our view. And, um, you know, so National Marine Fisheries Service withdrew its consent for the maintenance of uh, our drainage district's tide gates uh, a couple of years ago. And it was the right to or the ability to maintain those tide gates was predicated on the tide gate fish initiative agreement. The idea was there was uh, regular progress towards large projects on the estuary. Then this uh, permitting could continue. Now, you could question whether that was a good plan to begin with. I mean, it's it it didn't that agreement didn't put the duty on anyone to acquire land. Hmm. Um, And. 
you know, so that that that's a problem. And um, and so what where that uh, has left us is uh, we, as you recall, passed this uh, offsite mitigation ban. So we, what we don't want is uh, just opportunistic and random activity. We, we have an obligation as a community to meet recovery goals under the Endangered Species Act. You know, we're, we're not getting out of that. Uh, and there are other issues to be sure with uh, Chinook and their ability to recover and thrive. Marine harvest, pinniped predation, lots of things going on there. But we are going to have to do our piece. And what we need to do is make sure that it's done in the most rational, effective and organized way possible, uh, led by local governments, tribes and relevant agencies so that we can make sure that as we do what we are required to do, other folks are as well. And we get some certainty and predictability about our ability to maintain uh, this critical infrastructure without which farming a lot else won't work here. Yeah, uh, TFI, uh, that agreement that you're talking about, the Tidegate Fish Initiative, um, and that has been a big uh, part of the talk of late. What's going to happen with that? Explain, though, for folks who aren't familiar, what is the importance in that particular location, in that uh, geography there in Skagit County, along the water, the importance of the diking drainage and, and those tide gates? That makes all the difference in the world for farming and other things. Yeah, that's that's right, um, and uh, it, it, it's it's absolutely indispensable. Everybody understands the function of uh, marine dikes and river levees; they keep the, the the high water out. But there's a lot of water that comes off of this landscape that flows down, that rains, and it has to be let out. Is is so we're keeping the salt water and the river floods off the farmland, but there's also water that has to be let out, mm-hmm. and. Uh, these, 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 these tide gates are um, indispensable in that sense. So what happened is in the uh, 2000s, uh, some uh, environmental organizations brought suit against the local dike districts here saying that uh, you can't maintain these tide gates um, because it's harming salmon. And so in settlement, the districts entered a deal where they agreed to uh, facilitate, not fund, not organize, not run, not acquire land, just facilitate um, up to 2,700 acres of projects on the Skagit Estuary. This 2,700 acres is the number that tribes and agencies uh, sort of agreed is necessary to achieve recovery goals under the Endangered Species Act. This worked fairly well and was going uh, according to plan, but um, when City Light started relicensing its project, um, and this is uh, covered in the uh, the article uh, that you mentioned, uh, uh, the Post Alley article is a good yeah. thing for folks to read. Uh, you might maybe put something up on your website for people to see yeah. it. But uh, you know what what inspired is, uh, and and again, this is in the past. This is not the current status quo. Things you know we're making some progress with Seattle City Light, but understanding the history is necessary here. Yeah. And, Yep. Uh, they essentially had a need for more land than the 2,700 acres that we've all agreed to to recover salmon. So this is the problem with the mitigation concept. It goes beyond regulatory obligations into we need more land. And so um, land, land to yeah. use as mitigation for the uh, current lack of, of fish passage on, on the dams upstream. If I r- recall the proclivities of how we've discussed this previously, again, you say that that's making progress, but that's the background there. 
Yes, yes, yes. Thanks. Lots of lots of complicated pieces, but they they wanted to do habitat instead of fish passage. It's their principal mitigation, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and so um, you know I think it's there, it's fair to say there's some connections here, and uh, there was a lot of pressure put on NIMPS, the National Marine Fisheries Service that decides these things, uh, saying that the Tidegate Fish Initiative Agreement was behind schedule and wasn't working, and I think we everybody here felt quite differently and i think the facts reflect that but nevertheless the the national marine fisheries service withdrew its biological opinion uh supporting uh the permitting of these tide gates and so now no permits are issued to maintain these tide gates and of course they require regular maintenance Mm -hmm. Uh, you know this is natural you know this is in nature and things fall apart you have to maintain them um and so uh, this this is you know in a sense illogical. The whole setup here was illogical because it's actually a betterment, an improvement ecologically into fish habitat when they maintain the tide gates. They'll put in you know side opening gates that are better for fish instead mm-hmm. of top gates. So they're making things better when they maintain them. So we want right. them this to happen. Uh, but nevertheless, it's uh, so. So what we did as local governments, in partnership with the tribes, is uh, we said, okay, enough of this, right? It's this progress that's not happening is not our fault, but it's certainly we're being held accountable to a huge degree for the failure of, of this progress. Right. So uh, you know, the National Marine Fisheries Service has made abundantly clear the TFI and Tidegate Fish Initiative Agreement is not coming back. It's over. Mm. It's done. Um, and so what ha- what we have pursued over the last year is, um, you know, we need a long-term locally grounded forum to sort out uh, not just fish habitat, but uh, climate change and resilience plans, estuary restoration, farmland preservation. You know, this is all happening on the same 60,000 acres of the Skagit Delta. Yep. And this can't be a- a- approached piecemeal. Uh, we we need to see when we do these projects that we're significantly improve, not just improving our infrastructure, but ensuring that privately owned segments of dike are ending up in public uh, district hands. Uh, you know, these, these yep. this, this this flood control and drainage task doesn't end at individual property lines. It's very much a collective task, and that's why these districts, uh, these dike and drainage districts, were formed back in the early part of the 1900s. Yeah. Well, it, and it makes a lot. By the way, we're talking with um, Will Honey. Uh, he's the senior deputy prosecutor in Skagit County. Um, this is the Farming Show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI, um, talking about the latest uh, on this situation. Uh, we've talked about some of the pieces of this in the past, um, but back to what what we've been tackling here. Will it, not being able to maintain that infrastructure is bad for fish or can be bad for fish, right? Isn't it just absolutely counterintuitive that they're not allowing that? Um, well, I, I, I think, you know, the, the reasoning is uh, on the part of the folks that brought this about. The idea was that, uh, you know, if you can't maintain your tide gates, it'll create some leverage to force participation in large projects. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, holding up the entire valley's tide gate permits when the maintenance is itself helping fish, so as to compel unidentified landowners to sell their land. Uh, I, I think there's some legal issues there with that yeah. approach. Um, I won't, you know, won't go into that. But we, 
rather than addressing this problem from the standpoint of those legal issues, what we've said is, okay, we can all sit around and fight about it, or we can come together as local governments, as Skagit Treaty tribes and research, relevant resource agencies and, and figure this out. We, we have the ability as local government to help move this stuff forward in terms of land acquisition permitting, in terms of, you know, into the districts, uh, for one thing, have to be involved in any of these plans and they, they've been excluded, right? In terms of design, engineering, construction, maintenance, operations, they're charged by law with maintaining these things. And not just that, the folks that are behind these districts, they've been here for generations doing this. They know what they're doing. So, uh, you know, we have uh, insisted uh, that this be, you know, a locally led and locally grounded thing. So local government and the uh, co-managers. And we, uh, you know, we, we start with uh, this list that's been identified under the Chinook Recovery Plans, the Estuary Restoration Strategic Assessment Agencies, tribes, local government, ag groups all agreed on where's the best place for these 2,700 acres from an infrastructure, habitat, and farmland preservation perspective. Right. Um, and that rational and prioritized approach that's directly tied to recovery goals. Recovery goals means what we need to do to meet our obligations under the Endangered Species Act, not other stuff. Um, we bring all that together. And so we're, uh, we're, 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 we're down the road on that. And I think there's, it's, it's, it seems like a really positive thing. What is at stake here, though? I mean, th- it sounds like even if some progress is being made, now is not, not the time to uh, to step back and say, oh, this is all going to be okay. Um, what's no, what's the risk if this doesn't get ironed out? If if, if thing you know we don't get to a place where where uh, infrastructure can be maintained there in Skagit County, what's the risk for farming? Well, I mean, uh, the, the, obviously, uh, you know, it's. I think you're not going to see catastrophic failure, but if you don't maintain things, they start to fall apart. It starts to get more and more expensive. Deferred maintenance is a bad thing, right? Yep. And um, so, uh, you know, eventually you would see failures. But I think what's, uh, you know, th- th- these districts have a legal obligation to keep this infrastructure in order. So District 12, which is the district around Burlington, has filed a 60-day notice of intent to sue the National Marine Fishery Service. Um, I think they're coming up on that 60 days uh, because NEMS has failed to appropriately issue uh, tidegate maintenance permits. So, you know, it, it, it really is, I think, you know, it, what's to be lost here is this devolves into litigation and expense. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, we as local government have put all the necessary pieces in place. Uh, to to find success here. So we expect that, uh, every, you know, everybody's going to act in good faith and the agencies um, of both the state and federal government will be supportive. And they have been. So, um, you know, for the most part, particularly WFW. And uh, so what, what, what we, you know, what we see occurring is, again, you know, this becomes the nucleus of the local long, you know, locally grounded, long-term stable plan. I think one of the things I've, I've been doing this for uh, 16 years, this position, and 
you, you observe things over time. And uh, one of the things that I've seen is that every time there's a new uh, presidential administration, we get sort of a new bunch of people and a new bunch of money and a new bunch of plans. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, this is a long-term thing. This list of projects is going to take 30 years. We can't be changing the plan every four years. So yeah. we need a plan that's about the Skagit and then others are welcome to come help. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Again, Will Honey with the Skagit County Prosecutor's Office, Senior Deputy Prosecutor there here on the Farming Show with us. Um, real quick, when we're about out of time, you guys just had a bunch of water come through there uh, in terms of flooding. How did you How did you fare? Oh, well, it was uh, mercifully less than uh, it was forecasted. I think it yeah. was the forecast is up to 38 feet at the concrete gauge, and we ended up a bit less than that. Um so yeah, it was it was we, we were we were spared uh, the worst of it. Um, it is, you know, this flooding is is it's part of the equation when you live in this yep. part of the world, and you just have to build it into your plans. Yeah, exactly right. Well, and and that's an answer to a lot of folks' prayers that uh, it wasn't uh, as bad as it could have been. Uh, by quite a stretch. Again, Will Honey down in Skagit County, Senior Deputy Prosecutor down there. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the update. Uh, this is complicated stuff. It's hard to uh, dig through, but we appreciate the context that you bring and the explanation for why some of these things are the way they are. Um, and ultimately, it's good to hear there's progress being made. Um, I sure hope they, they keep at it and solve some more of these big issues that continue to loom. Okay, well, uh, thanks for the call, Dylan. You take care. You love what you find at Wilson's. Cozy up this fall and winter with new motion furniture from Wilson's Furniture. If you haven't checked out what used to be called reclining furniture in a while, you're in for some surprises. Wilson's has a huge selection of single recliners in an amazing array of styles and fabrics and leather, as well as love seats, couches, and sectionals. Have an entertainment room? Check out the selection of theater-style seating at Wilson's. Check out the models that feature power recline, allowing you to pick the precise position to relax and or watch the big game in. And several models are battery powered. No need to be tethered to an outlet. Stop into Wilson's Furniture today with their huge selection that you'll find in stock and ready for delivery. Your biggest challenge will be deciding what to choose. And the motion furniture experts at Wilson's will be there to help you find the style that's perfect for your home and budget. Wilson's open seven days a week and online 24-7 at wilsonhomefurnishings.com. Struggling to get that car door lock to budge? The lock might not be to blame. When the weather gets cold, locks seize up. Lubricating your outdoor locks in the fall and around New Year's can help keep them operating smoothly. Having a good lubricant on hand can solve the problem. Stop by Accurate Lock and Security today to pick up some TriFlow or LPS1 lubricant. For lockouts a little lube can't solve, call Accurate Lock and Security. The locksmiths you can trust. Accurate Lock and Security. The security professional team. Online at AccurateLock.net. That's Accurate lock.net. Hello folks, this is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham and I'd like to invite you to join me every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. right here on KGMI for the Aging Hour. If you have questions about Medicare, Medicaid, long-term care costs, probate, wills, trusts, or anything else that has to do with aging, this is the radio show for you. Studies show that more than 70% of estate plans fail when families need them the most. Join us every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. and we can show you how to set your family up for success. 
Hi, this is Joe Tian from KGMI. We know you hear local businesses advertise with us every day, but did you know that when you do your holiday shopping online or in-store with a local business, nearly 70% of every dollar you spend stays right here in our community. That's better than a lump of coal any day. Thanks for letting us be part of your holiday. We'll see you at a local business soon. A holiday reminder to shop local from Cascade Radio Group and KGMI. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. Nobody's talking about how are we going to help farm workers make more money? That's the issue right now. Farm workers are making less money than they used to. And why is it? It's Washington state law that was, well, at least by the the powers that be that don't understand farming, um, they thought they were going to help farm workers make more. It didn't turn out that way. And in fact, it's causing them to make less. As we predicted, um, we here on this program, we at Save Family Farming uh, and people across the farming uh, community in Washington State and other experts as well. Why? Uh, Because farming is on a whole pretty tapped out as far as, as labor costs. So farms, to be able to stay out of the red, and by the way, if you want to keep growing food, you can't be in the red year after year after year after year. Honestly, farms are are often in the red one year and in the black the next year. That's how farming goes. We talk about that on the program. But you can't do that, you know, being in the red, being in debt, you know, not making a profit for too many years and you're done. And so farms are having to protect their bottom line to be like, hey, we need to survive here. We have to limit the number of hours that folks work. The upshot is that workers are able to make less money under this uh, dropping uh, overtime threshold that's being phased in. It goes to 40 hours a week starting January 1st. This is the Farming Show. Good morning to you. I'm Dylan Honkoop. We've talked a lot about this issue here on the program. I'm with Save Family Farming, and joining me uh, this morning is Pam Lewison with the Washington Policy Center um, with their initiative on agriculture. She's a frequent guest here on the show. And most recently, I mean, I I think I've talked here on the program in recent weeks about what's happened, you know, what happened this fall with uh, farm worker gatherings all all over the state, several gatherings that uh, brought out nearly a thousand farm workers wanting to get more information on this and wanting to have the opportunity to voice publicly voice their frustration and do something, anything to be heard in Olympia. So those folks start to recognize the decisions they're making aren't helping, but are hurting 
the farm workers here in our state. Pam, um, you wrote a blog about a, a meeting that just happened, though, and this is the most recent thing, uh, a meeting on the 30th of November before the Washington State Senate Ag uh, Committee, uh, state senators having a work session, uh, and one of the two big topics of the session, work session, was, was this overtime issue. And we heard from different groups of folks. And, I, you know, personally, just for starters, I was disappointed that there wasn't more conversation from anyone about the real problem as I see it here, which is what are we going to do to help the people that this whole concept, this whole issue in the first place was supposed to be about helping? They say it's hurting them. And while, you know, advocates, activists, people who um, honestly game the political system to their, uh, you know, very niche, uh, ultra progressive uh, motives, as we've talked about, the the labor activists in this state, um, they will say, well, you know, um, this is just the, the narrative of the farmers. It's not true. But once you see nearly a thousand farm workers come out because of the growing frustration on this, you know, it's a real thing. People are legitimately frustrated. Talk about what was said, though. I mean, in not talking about actually coming up with a, a solution that helps those folks, there was some pushback from the folks that are supposed to care and be advocating for the farm worker community. They they said it's all about some deal that was made a couple of years ago. Well, so, you know, I thought that the Senate work session was interesting in its approach to talking about the phase in of overtime and specifically um, this, this, we had a deal and, and now farmers are trying to break that deal. Um, and what they're alluding to is when uh, the overtime legislation was first introduced, there were, uh, of course, several conversations and a lot of negotiation, um, as with any piece of legislation that occurs um, behind the scenes. You know, there's there's always conversation between legislators um, from both sides of the aisle that occurs um, not on the floor and not um, not in committee. There's still a lot of things going on and a lot of discussion going on. And in that conversation, um, there was another version of the bill that went through um, this sort of negotiation process that had in it this seasonal flexibility approach but we were getting to the end of session. And, and, and seasonal flexibility is probably the the most obvious potential solution to give both farmers and farm workers some relief on this, this issue. Yes. And uh, we were getting to the end of session. Things were really tight and they couldn't get kind of buy-in from everyone. And they finally did. And then... Senator Kaiser at the last minute said, I don't want it in the bill. Seasonal, we'll flex seasonal flexibility, you mean? Yeah, yeah, I don't want seasonal flexibility in the bill. We'll talk about it after we get the bill passed. Mm. We'll come back and we will talk about seasonal flexibility as its own piece after we get this bill passed. So, so, so did some of the, the other folks, particularly the labor activists, 
not get the memo on on that because now they're saying by bringing this up and doing exactly what you talked about then as you're saying to revisit this issue and hash it out later by doing that they say the initial deal is being reneged by the the farming community oh um i'm certainly got the memo because uh they or their representatives were present for those negotiations so at least what, what's the what give? How can they spin it now that this is going back on the deal when this is exactly what Senator Kaiser said she wanted to have happen? And, and for folks who don't know Senator Kaiser, she has a long background in the, the labor movement and is very sympathetic to these activists and folks, some folks who I believe are extremists on this issue. So this is what she wanted, really, I mean, advocating for their side of things. I think that, <clears throat> I mean, I I don't know. I wasn't sitting at the table, but I suspect that what happened is um, that that back and forth ultimately became a last minute, we're going to get what we want. And then once we have you over a barrel, we'll hmm. decide whether or not we're going to come back and actually have this conversation or not. But the agreement was in place that they would come back to the table and have a conversation about seasonal flexibility in some form, specifically because ag interests were aware that the people who were going to be hurt most by this piece of legislation and the phase-in of overtime were going to be farm workers. Back to what I was saying in the beginning, I mean, because that turned out to be true. And, and uh, the most pain hasn't been felt yet even. This year, the threshold was 48 hours um, with a three-year phase-in that was approved as part of that deal. Um, next year, this coming year, 2024, um, will be that much more painful for folks who are just trying to get as many hours as they can, get as much, uh, make as much money as they can when the work is available during harvest times or other busy seasons on the farm. That's the whole point of, you know, farm work, farming as a whole, being very seasonal, being tied to the ebb and flow of Mother Nature and the cycles of the year um, and of plants. Uh, there's busy times and slow times. So you make as much money as you can. You make hay when the sun shines um, and you probably are slower in other times of year trying to fit a, a system that was designed for factory work onto that, that way of life. It just isn't fitting. Uh, but they say that's, that that's what they need to do. And they don't seem to be discussing any, sort of relief for the very people who say this is causing them harm. Mm -hmm. Where, where, where does that become part of the discussion? Instead, the advocates are, are talking about heady issues of, you know, it, basically conceptual issues, abstract ideas of is overtime a good thing or not? Is it about equality and dignity and equity and systemic racism and all of these ideas and uh, you know i don't necessarily agree with all of their arguments there but i'd say throw all of that out and first what are we going to do to help people and and nobody was talking about that well i think they what's really difficult in those kinds of arguments is generally speaking if you're in the ag community you are first and foremost a boots on the ground individual so you want to deal with things that are tangible 
and you want to deal with things that you are holding in your hand every day. And if you're a, you know, if you're a farm worker, what you're holding in your hand now is a check that keeps getting smaller. And that doesn't mean that you are not working hard or that you're not appreciated. It means that both you and your employer understand that there is an economics to farming. And in the current economic situation that we're in, farmers are having to make hard choices and they're having to have discussions with their farm workers saying, I genuinely appreciate that you show up to work every single day and that you put in every hour that you put in. However, I cannot pay you overtime because I cannot afford it. That's where and they're being forced to have those conversations. Well, the, but these these labor activists and you know the two people that were representing that perspective in the, the, the activist perspective in this meeting that we're talking about. And by the way, we're talking with Pam Lewison right now on the Farm Show, Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Um, Pam Lewison with Washington Policy Center talking about uh, overtime in the world of farming uh, and what it's actually meant for farm workers. As we have discussed numerous times here on the program, this latest uh, development, this work session, um, the, the folks representing that side in there were Andrea Schmidt with Columbia Legal Services, uh, an extreme um, progressive voice that is, you know, f- from a group that, that is all about very far left ideals and you know, supporting the labor movement um, to an extreme end. And then even more extreme, it, it was Edgar Franks, uh, the political director, I think he's called now, with Familias Unidas por la Justicia, a group that, that calls themselves a union, has a, a one single union contract down at uh, Sakumar Brothers Farms in Skagit County after that whole debacle and controversy down there. Um, Edgar Franks, who, as we pointed out, I mean, it's the, the number of falsehoods that that man has spoken over the years are mind-boggling. They make your head spin if you start looking at all of the things that he's either uh, said that are completely false or at least twisted the truth enough to make it unrecognizable uh, to reality. They're saying, well, you know, they were trying to at least suggest that this wasn't true. Uh, what you were just saying, Pam, that, that farmers are having to make that hard choice to limit folks' hours um, to survive financially and and continue growing food he's saying and again he didn't say it directly because he doesn't have any numbers to prove it we know that but he claimed and again twisting using the wrong well in his i mind the right word um to suggest that farms are pulling in as he said record profits um and we can talk about that in a minute but i i just I mean, it's not profits maybe that he's talking about, or maybe he's deliberately using the word profit incorrectly here. Listen to this. I mean, for those in the farming community, this is laughable. What Edgar Franks is saying is it's so far from the truth. Take a listen to this clip from that, that meeting. This is Edgar Franks with Familias Unidas por la Justicia talking about this overtime issue and the, the deal that was made. You know, we weren't looking to destroy the farm industry. Um, 
as I understand it, they've been making record profits since over time um, became law in 2021. Um, you know, I think there's clippings and articles that everybody can look at where um, where um, industry uh, leaders have been saying, you know, year after year, the record profits that are coming in. Record profits. That doesn't jive with reality at all, Pam. What, what's going on there? How can he make that claim? Well, so I think what uh, he's alluding to is um, the value of our crop production. There was a report that was issued earlier this year about the value of our crop production in 2022. Value meaning did, gross, gross right, revenue. Gross value. Yeah. And we did have a record breaking year in 2022 for the first time. You mean time, we as, as the farming community as a whole in Washington right, state. Yeah. Right. The farming community as a whole broke um, the gross revenue record for our crop production value. However, in 2022, we also saw extraordinary increases in cost of production. So when you start looking at what that cost of production did to that actual on-farm income, there was no difference. If anything, it may have actually put us back a little bit. And that's what we're hearing from folks on the ground anecdotally. You're talking about the overall, the actual numbers, the data, and you talk with yep. farmers and, and more and more they're saying, you know, it keeps getting tighter and tighter. We're not sure how much longer we can keep doing this. And if anything, the only people that are sort of surviving okay now are the, the biggest players in all this, which is also, I'm sure what Edgar Franks would say he doesn't want. And those are the types of operations he loves to uh, demonize. But there, you know, a, a large corporation is about the only um, you know, structure right now that can weather some of these these financial storms that that farming and people growing food in Washington State can, are, are are experiencing. It, it, but to uh, back to his quote, Edgar Franks using the term profits incorrectly because he's talking about overall revenue, and, and we have this all the time with farming. People say, "Oh, somebody must be a millionaire," you know. Oh, look, their farm brought in uh, seven million dollars last year. But guess what? Their costs were six hundred and six point nine nine. You know, they they, they maybe had seventy thousand dollars of profit, and they're happy because hey, that covers what they need for their whole family, and that's it. And they're just hanging in there. Maybe it was less because you know some years you don't make any money at all. You have to go back to the banker. Um, you know how it goes, Pam. I've experienced it. This was my life growing up. Some years it's like we just hope we can make it to next year because if we do this two or three years in a row, um, dad's going to have to sell a farm. We're going to have to move into town and do something different. Well, and I think the best way to really think about agriculture is not in terms of what those gross numbers look like. It's really about what's your profit margin. Mm-hmm. And the best way for me to describe it is in agriculture, more than 60% of farms in agriculture have a profit margin of 10%. Now, anybody who runs a business will know what that means. You have 10% of your income to work with. That's it. You have 10% to cover all of your operating costs, labor, 
uh, regulations, pesticides, all of your inputs have to be covered by 10% of what your gross right. revenue versus, you know, with all of your expenses removed. What you have left is 10%. And that's to, that still to cover, yeah, to, to cover those costs at leaving, you know, what are you actually making in, you know, clear and away profit mm-hmm. <laughs> can be and then, peanuts. And, and then uh, to have a comparison for what that looks like with some of the other top industries in Washington, because agriculture is number two, mm-hmm. some of the other top industries in, in the state uh, in software and um, computer programming, Profits range anywhere from 60 to 70%. That's yeah. your profit margin. If you are even, let's say, let's look at something that's uh, sort of more trades related, something more uh, closely aligned with ag in terms of people working. Yep. Uh, and that's building. Yep. The building industry still has a profit margin running around 20 to 30%. Two to three times as much as farming. A right. basic... These folks need a lesson in basic economics when they throw around terms like that, claiming that farming is is seeing record record profits. And why don't they share that with their workers when the reality is you look at the costs for a lot of farming in Washington state right now, uh, labor intensive crops in particular, which is a lot of what we grow here. um, Labor is one of, if not the biggest cost uh, that has to be covered by that slice of the pie and how can you have that and claim that the, you know the quote unquote wealth isn't being shared uh it, it's it it defies logic uh what they're saying and what edgar franks is claiming in terms of record profits pam lewison with washington policy center uh, i just looked at the clock we're out of time thank you so much for being with us here on the program this morning and folks go to washingtonpolicy.org to check out pam uh, pam's work and her recent blogs including the one that we were talking about today it does a much better job of explaining it than than i tried to and we were able to in the amount of time that we had this morning so, so thanks so much pam thanks for having me